Artemis endeavors to get more women in the field and on the water. To support women as leaders in the conservation movement. To ensure the vitality of our lands, waters, and wildlife. Artemis endeavors to change the face of conservation. Hey everybody, welcome to the Artemis Podcast. I am your host, Marsha Brownlee, and our co-host today is Becca Acido. Hi, Becca. Hi, Marsha. How's it going? Well, it's Monday, and I had a great weekend, and yeah, now I'm back at work, which isn't the worst thing in the world. <laughs> it's a it's a good day all around. Good. Yeah, it's my first Monday back after my bear hunt, and reintegration has been difficult, and I apologize if my sentence structure is, is awful because of it. It's been hard. Talking's been hard today. Yeah, not only have you been out of service, but just to be back you go from being out there to being back in the city. I'm sure you're firing on all on all ends right now. Yep. We're not firing on all ends, as the case may be. <laughs> Misfiring on all ends. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've been curious about now that spring is kind of in full swing, my apple trees are blossoming and it looks like my lavender trees are lavender trees? I don't know, lavender trees. My lilac trees are getting ready to. What's your property up to? Anything new? Well, everything is blooming, but because I moved in um, in December, I have no idea what anything is. So I also have fruit trees out back and they're starting to bloom, but I don't know what they are. It's kind of an exciting mystery. That's super exciting. Uh, well, we'll keep checking yeah. in with you. It could be apricots, could be <laughs> apples, could be plums. I know. I'm, I'm kind of getting excited about a few specific fruits, but I don't want to get my hopes up. So I think... I'm just going to wait and see what it is. I think just go with the idea that any fruit is really exciting. Because I feel yeah, like exactly. and I, I can get behind that. I am going to have to battle some deer for whatever it yeah. ends up being. So I have to figure that one out. Yeah. Well, cool. Uh, I'm excited to talk to our guest today. I had the pleasure of meeting her in real life. Gosh, I can't even remember. A few couple, few years ago. Um, now when I was on a trip to Washington. Uh, please welcome our guest today, Jen Sarowitz. Hi, Jen. Hi, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Thanks for joining us. I'm excited to talk to you. I am. This is the first podcast I've ever done oh. in my life. Well, not welcome. a, not a, thanks, not a social media or, or, or this kind of media person in general. So, um, Forgive me if I <laughs> if I struggle, but no. this is great. It's just like having a conversation. It's exactly like having a conversation. You and me and Becca are just going to talk about hunting and conservation, and it's going to be real fun. Um, and we're going to start you off with a really, really hard question. Why don't you tell us what's in your freezer? <laughs> I'll start with, let's see. You know, I'm an upland game hunter, and the harvest proportions are smaller than than what you will have taken home from your bear hunt. So the quail and the Hungarian partridge, those are long gone, um, but there's still a wild turkey in there that we've, that we've got saved. And um, then of course, lots of salmon and ling cod and all the goodness from the Pacific Northwest waters. How about you guys? Um. Well, my freezer has a new bear in it. Well, it doesn't yet. It <laughs> will have a new bear in it. Um, 
Gosh, congratulations. Thank you. And I made some new friends in my bear hunt. So it now also has some homemade sausage from um, Blacktail, which I've never tried before. And oh gosh, there was something else. It was like an artichoke whitetail. And then, oh, I'm going to have to actually look in my freezer and let you know what it is. Because there was one other um, (laughs) animal that I hadn't ever tried before that I was really excited to to get some sausage. Um, But I can't remember it right now. (laughs) But anyway, I'm excited for the black bear. bear. No, this is my third bear. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Becca, anything new in your freezer? How's turkey hunting? Um, I have not been yet. Uh, I have to drive about six hours to get over where I would turkey hunt. So I haven't yet decided to do that drive on one of my weekends. Um, Yeah. But because summer's around the corner, I don't know if you guys are like this, but I hoard everything. Um, (laughs) Not necessarily in a good way either. I'm like, Mm -hmm. I can't eat my huckleberries because then I'm going to be out of huckleberries. But then it's May 2021. And I have two and a half um, gallon size Ziploc bags full of them. So I'm like, I should probably start eating those now that it's almost time to pick them again. So that's what I'm currently doing is trying to eat all the um, foraged goodies that are in my freezer. It's amazing. And I am exactly the same way. I'm like, I, I'm going <laughs> to save that meat because it's only May and November's a lot. Yeah, it's not the best practice. I need to figure out another tactic. What are you going to do with the huckleberries? Um, I think I'm going to make a cheesecake. Mm. I saw a recipe the other day for huckleberry cheesecake and it sounded really good. Yeah. I also, I've had a couple of yummy huckleberry cocktails. I'm just saying. Yum. Yum, yum. Um, Jen, tell us a little bit about who you are. Oh gosh. I, um, I am, you know, probably like many of your guests, not the typical, um, kids that grew up hunting and fishing with their fathers, I, I'm late to the game. I came to uh, hunting and fish and wildlife management in graduate school. And I had just some incredible mentors that have shaped me personally and professionally over the last decade plus. Um, my first hunt was waterfowl in the Manitoba wetlands gosh, in 2000 and, oh my goodness, let's just say 10, and um, 2008 maybe, and it's interesting because, you know, then you're starting to learn about, you know, all of our forefathers and and mothers and reading Sand County Almanac again and, and, and going to the the chapter including Clandeboy, Manitoba, which is down the street from, you know, where I grew up and had my formative years um, in the Canadian prairies and realizing this vast source of waterfowl available to me, I, I sort of felt like I'd missed out quite a bit up until my later years. Um, so that was, that was my intro. And you know, I, I finished graduate school. I, I studied prairie chickens in Minnesota and uh, have been in the conservation nonprofit ever since. Um, I didn't realize that you walk- were Canadian. 
Uh, <laughs> yep, I, we moved to Washington State um, about 10 years ago, so I've, I've lost a little bit of that accent. You'll, you'll hear it every now and then, but, um, but yeah, it's been, it's been a while. We love the West Coast. We'll, we'll stay out here for the anticipated future for sure. Um, but the prairies were my formative years and obviously waterfall hunting. I mean, what else could I have really started on? Mm-hmm. Prairie potholes. So, uh, you said your master's? Yeah. No, your, and I've stuck with birds since yeah. then. Yeah. That's right. Because you worked for Audubon for a little bit too, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. So my, my master's was on, on birds, on prairie chickens. And then again, I, I stuck with those birds. I, I was with Audubon for quite a number of years um, and jumped around a little bit doing all of the various nonprofit things, all the hats, uh, and have recently found myself settled into a conservation program manager position at Conservation Northwest, which is the National Wildlife Federation's affiliate in oh. Washington State. So come full circle. <laughs> it's great, great to be chatting with you guys. Yeah, Conservation Northwest, they've been doing good stuff for the wild in, in Washington since 89. Gosh, okay. 1989, I think, 87. So um, it's great to be part of a, a team that, you know, they're just, it's all about the wild. It's about connecting those landscapes and maintaining healthy populations of, of um, big game and, and birds and um, uh, all, the, all, the, uh, all the wild places that are out there. So it's great. I feel like I've come full circle back to where I really wanted to be, which is in, you know, leading programs and thinking big landscape scale and um, also bringing social issues to tables that um, that have not had social issues at them for a long time. I think the world of conservation is evolving and, and more and more more and more people are being brought to the table as they should be and as they should have been. It's great. It's been rewarding so far. Uh, I I want to dive in a little bit to prairie chickens. What was your <laughs> master's focus? What did you what did you yeah tell us about prairie chickens and what you learned? <laughs> uh, well, the focus was brood habitat, so it was looking at at chick habitat and what they were eating. Um, and the different grasslands in which in which the chicks found themselves and, and what they could be eating in those grasslands. So Minnesota, northwestern Minnesota, um, they had they were really successful with the conservation reserve program dollars um, back in the 90s and brought in all this grassland and and the prairie chicken population boomed. Um, uh, pun intended. Think about prairie chickens there they boom they boom on booming grounds <laughs> and they they did great and and it wasn't even at that time necessarily a great mix of grasses right like there was grow monocultures and um interspersed with with heavy grazing and and yet they still did well like as long as it was grass and it was relative to some egg that they could feed in they did fantastic and so as that CRP started to get pulled out, you know, we were looking at um, 
other native grasslands and state wildlife lands, as well as um, uh, those brown monocultures, as, as well as uh, forbs. They love those alfalfa fields and other types of agriculture that was happening, sunflowers, et cetera. So anyways, um, you know, the long story short is without grass, you don't have prairie chickens. And so I, I, it's been over a decade now and last I knew those populations were continuing to decline without, without that grass. Um, you know, you can have lots of great alfalfa fields which are wonderful for chicks to thrive in, but um, if you don't have the right uh, coordinated nesting grounds and blooming grounds and roosting habitat, you know, we all know, we all know all of the things that are needed to make a whole, to make a wildlife population whole. And if any of those pieces are missing, it becomes a challenge. So. Very cool. But yeah, it's, it's in, instilled in me a lifelong uh, passion for grouse. Yeah. And that led to my upland game um, interest from there. Do you have dogs, bird dogs? <laughs> I have dogs, but they are not bird dogs. <laughs> <laughs> by any, we, by any stretch um, of the imagination? No, goodness. No. Well, one of them's deaf, so oh. maybe she would tolerate the guns. Um, but no, no, they are by no stretch of the imagination are they gun dogs. That being said, um, our mentor, of course, has wonderful dogs and um we were certainly considering that the next edition could be a, a nice English setter or um, some type of, of hunting, dog, hunting dog, upland game dog. Um, so, so do we'll you, see. We'll get there yeah. one step at a time. So do you hunt without dogs then? I have actually. So, and, and we've been successful. Um, my, my, biggest, my biggest fear without a dog is that um, is the uh, harvest of not actually being able to find the bird mm. after you know you've you've bound it. Um, but honestly, that has happened when I've been with dogs and with not dogs. Um, and so I'm not yet completely deterred from hunting without them. Um, but I would prefer to to adopt adopt a new friend and have that by my side. Yeah. I think, you know, the dogs certainly give you a leg up in terms of finding the birds, but if you know a place really well and you've scouted that habitat and you've walked those hills, um, you have a sense of where those birds are, are going to be. Um, so, yeah, we've actually, we've been successful without, with and without. I'm intrigued by that because I've only talked to... Um... Sorry, I'm distracted because there's a spider <laughs> working its way down the <laughs> ceiling right in front of my face. Um, uh, uh, I'm intrigued by that because I've only talked to upland hunters who have bird dogs. Uh, and so mm -hmm. uh, the idea of doing it without dogs does seem a little bit more complicated and a little bit trickier. Becca, have you ever hunted without Hatch? Upland bird hunted? Um, I have. Yeah, Jen, I have a two and a half year old yellow lab. Um, oh, before I got him, I had done some checker hunting um, here in Idaho without a dog. I had done pheasant hunting 
a little bit of jump and shoot waterfowl hunting um, and then grouse hunting. Uh, I was never successful chucker hunting. And if you guys have been <laughs> chucker hunting, you know, you'll hear them, but you'll never mm-hmm. find them. Mm-hmm. Or if you do, they're gone so quick, you don't get a shot off at them. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, like you mentioned, having a dog can give you a leg up. One of the reasons I like hunting with him so much is just to watch him work, um, yeah. watch those instincts kick in. Most of the time, we don't go home with a bird. Um so it's not necessarily about the fact that he makes my life out there easier. Mm. In fact, it can add a lot of layers that make things more complicated when you're hunting, um, just to have, have have a dog out there. But personally, it's a lot more enjoyable to be out there with a dog, mm-hmm. just to have his companionship and to watch him work. Yeah, I was just going to say exactly those words. Watching a, watching a dog with a job is is... It's just a, it's like a play in and of itself across that landscape. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, but I commend you for for going at it without one because um, it makes <laughs> your own thing kick in a lot more. Um, it really does. You have to yeah, and yeah, their habits and where you think that they're more likely to be, and which rocks they're hiding behind, and which gully you know, and which part of it are they in at this hour of the day? And um, I'll tell you this, the snow is very helpful. (laughs) (laughs) The tracks in the snow are, um, I love tracking anyways. And and so tracking, tracking them in in the snow is is a lot of fun. Uh, And that, that has also been very helpful in, in locating the birds when they're still on the ground. That seems like a great segue. Can you tell us one of your favorite memories from in the field or on the water? Oh, goodness. Um, let's see. My first bird, my first bird was a Hungarian partridge. And I was with a dog, but the dog had already passed through, passed through the, the group. Um, and I was sort of trailing behind trying to catch my breath up this ridiculous steep rocky cliff (laughs) and I sat down I sat down to catch my breath on this boulder and a late late time Charlie as there always is flushed directly over me he flew backwards (laughs) and flew directly over me and I took the shot and it was perfect it was a perfect shot that was exciting that was it was thrilling because I got such a beautiful view of the bird flying as, as um, I took it. And it was a really, um, that was a nice moment. That was a nice first uh, harvest. Um, and then of course, you know, I think the next one I had to wring its neck and bash heads on rocks. And those ones are a little bit more traumatic initially, but that first one was, was a beautiful moment. And what an incredible shot, too. I mean, the, <laughs> the half was sitting. <laughs> yeah. It's almost like waterfall hunting when I think about it. Mm. It was interesting. But. Yeah. Um, so typically, Jen, when I line up potential podcast guests, I ask them 
if there's a topic they're especially inter interested in discussing. And when I asked you that, you said funding for wildlife management, um, which is not an which is an answer I appreciate, but not one you hear very often. Uh, why is this topic <laughs> of interest to you? Uh, you know, it it started in graduate school, and then it discontinued to increase through my career. Most recently, I had the opportunity to sit in inside of our local um, fish and game department here in Washington and see the inner workings of those dollars. And, and it, it just um, emphasized everything I, I thought I had learned and, and knew about uh, how wildlife is, how wildlife management is, is or is not uh, funded. So it's become, it's, it's actually become a, a twofold interest. Um, two things that sort of nest inside of each other. One being the fact that funding for wildlife management is lacking. And two being, why is that? And how do we, how do we correct that for, for durable solutions in the long run? So I don't know where you want me to start because I could, it's very easy to get on my soapbox. Well, yeah, no, I think, I mean, it, it, like the estimates that I've seen show that wildlife funding is at less than 5% of what's needed in, in order to accurately, mm -hmm. to adequately serve conservation needs of wildlife species, which, yeah. uh, which is a staggering number. And so I think, get on your soapbox. Let's, let's hear what you have to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let's, and I'd be interested to hear your opinions as well on this. So I knew nothing. So granted, I came from a humanities background initially, but then I moved into environmental studies and environmental sciences and biology classes and zoology classes. I still knew nothing about wildlife management and how it was funded until I was in graduate school. So let's, what is that? Like, let's say grade 16, 18, before I learned anything about this. And to me, that is a huge gap in our education system. Um, you know, when I was growing up, we were learning about the ozone layer and, you know, atoms and all the, the, the basics of, of biology. But we weren't taught really about ecosystems and how the things work together and, and ultimately then um, why we might need to manage those things now and, and how we do it and, and how we pay for those things. I don't know. Did you guys learn about, about wildlife management and I, as one example, the model, the you know, North American model of wildlife conservation? As, when did you learn about those things? Uh, uh, when I started this job, <laughs> I'm perfectly right. Honest. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> As a fellow humanities major uh, who spent the majority of my life in a preschool classroom, a majority of my adult life, yeah, uh, diving into and really paying attention to wildlife management and conservation funding wasn't something that I uh, even considered until I became a hunter. Right. And, and then very shortly thereafter took this job. Right. Becca, I bet your trajectory yeah. is a little bit different with yeah. your, your less than humanities background. <laughs> well, 
I wish I could say I mean, that it more was than humanities background. But... Let me rephrase that. Sorry. <laughs> so Jen, I got my undergrad in um, natural resources from the University of Kentucky. And because so that's such a broad topic, right? Um, my degree wasn't really focused on one particular area underneath that. I mean, I, I had a focus area, but it was pretty loose. So I took a few wildlife conservation classes. Um, but, you know, now, over 10 years later, I have a hard time remembering any concrete time in which professors talked about funding models. And I'm sure it came up, but the majority of the of the studies were based more on um, the sort of the what, not the how, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But what do, what is the what without the how, right? Like right. how, <laughs> you, you know, um, and why? The, these, you know, when you think of the four or five W's or whatever, this comes up for me a lot lately. The why question and the how question are often the ones that are left unanswered or perhaps are the most difficult to answer. But in this case, again, like, you know, if you talk to the average person, you know, they, first of all, they're not thinking about these things. Um, And second of all, they would say, well, why do we need to manage at all? Don't they, don't these populations manage themselves? Um, And, you know, there's a, there's, then you start talking about um, carrying capacities and the influence of humans on the landscape and, and, you know, why there's too many deer now and et cetera. And so, you know, these, these aren't difficult concepts, but they could be introduced so much earlier such that people at least have a clue. You know, that 5% does like, it's, it is unfortunate, but is not that surprising to me based on what people know, right? What people know and love. I'm not, I don't even blame people for not, um, you know, voting to pass a conservation tax as one example because they haven't been taught. They don't. They they don't know, right? It's this. It's this problem of ignorance, and without that component in the education system that is um, helping helping people understand why wildlife uh, management is necessary and how it is funded, um, you know, there's this, there's this huge gap that I, that I see being created in, in the public sphere. And I've talked, I've even gone and I've started talking to educators about this. And, you know, I'm, this is not new. I'm not the first person to, to think of these things, obviously. And there have been excellent efforts made, especially by um, like 4-H, for example, mm. you know, and they, they came up with a wildlife habitat education program and, and um, they have other wildlife curricular models, you know, facilitator guides that, that they've created that would complement curricula for, for teachers. And, you know, we're, we're trying to make it easier for teachers to, to bring these lessons in, but it's not mandated. And, and it's still, it's still a, it doesn't address the systemic issue, right? Like, 
let's go back to the beginning. Wildlife is a public trust resource, right? It is, it belongs to all of us. And in some ways that's very unique in North America and something that we of course celebrate. Um, but if the public doesn't know that it's in their trust and that they should therefore be contributing to its care, you know, why would they, why would they even think about these things, let alone vote for funding or go to, in my case, Olympia, Washington and, and lobby for more monies for these, for these things. You know, I would love it to, I would love in Washington, Olympia in Washington, for example, in the evergreen state, let me remind you, we're still, you know, educating our decision makers about why it's important to fund a proper fish and wildlife department. To me, that's crazy. Like these, we should be bringing up leaders that already understand and recognize these values and understand the investments and how wildlife is and needs to be funded now and in the future. Um, I, I, I would love to see leadership that understands these con concepts and then constituents that bring their concerns to these leaders and remind them of the importance of, of these funding mechanisms. So, it, gosh. Yeah, it's so interesting because um, the, again, when I w was working in education, I, w I had the privilege of working in a nature-based school. So a lot of what we did mm -hmm. was get kids outside and just kind of let the their natural curiosity and the wonder that nature inspires take over um, and following the one of my favorite quotes from David Sobel, who um, developed place-based education curriculum, was you have to teach somebody to love something before you can ask them to save it. And that mm -hmm. to me is, I mean, that's just true, right? <laughs> I really believe that that's just true. Um, and I wonder yeah. if that's part of the puzzle piece that's missing um, when it comes to talking about conservation funding and effective management is that there's, uh, well, there, I mean, nature, nature deficit disorder is a thing. Yeah. Um, and lack of access uh, to uh, outdoor spaces is a thing. And I wonder um, at what point do we need to um, plug uh, what's, I can't think of the right metaphor, but I think you know where I'm going with this. Like, where do we start to correct that, um, that lack of, of follow through, lack of understanding? Yeah. I totally agree. I totally, I, I believe that as well, right? We're not gonna, you're not gonna invest in something that you don't, that you don't know and love. Um, and so that, that certainly forms the basis. But I think, I feel like we miss an opportunity when we don't build upon that, you know, let's say in junior high or high school. Um, and we can, we can take field trips to state wildlife or you know management areas or or to um, a landowner's property that opens opens his gates to hunters and they talk about how you know hunters and anglers have been have been the bedrock of conservation funding for um, generations now and and <laughs> how that is not sustainable in the long term and even if it was should that should that weight be carried by one user group? I am, I am, I, I don't agree with the idea of pay to play. 
day. I think that creates barriers. I think we are all responsible for the health of these populations. It is a public resource and the entire public should be invested in its conservation. That's my bottom line. That's why I think we end up going back to the education conversation such that we create constituencies and leaders that are invested in fighting for dollars at the table. Mm -hmm. And it's not even just fish and wildlife departments. It is all the natural resource agencies that I work with in my nonprofit career. They are desperately underfunded. Even, even in Washington state, again, this, this quote unquote evergreen state, you know, and I was <laughs> just reading, you know, I often go back to the Missouri conservation tax, it's, you know, one eighth of, of a cent um, sales tax. And I think I read it, it's bringing in $97 million annually right now mm. or something absolutely incredible. Like what Washington could do with those dollars. Now, that being said, Washington state has no income tax. And so it is an incredibly regressive tax system that we have. So there would have to be caveats put on um, in terms of income levels, of course. I don't, I don't have all the answers, but I, I do believe that, that even those that, um, you know, even those that are um, in disadvantaged communities know they want to see, I, I would have to assume that they want to see these investments made. Um, we, we see these studies that say, um, you know, First Nations and, and Hispanic communities are, are not only are they on the front lines of impacts, but on the front lines of caring um, and wanting to take action and wanting to see these things um, such as wildlife and habitat looked after for for their use and for future generations. So there, there just there has to be a better way, I guess is what I'm saying. And this is not to the exclusion of of uh, ammo tax and, and gun tax, which I'm very supportive of. I think I think um, you know that model has has been working, and and we can continue to make those additional investments. But I think in the long term, if we want durable funding solutions, we're gonna, we're gonna have to bring the entire populace along. Um, and that, again, just along those lines, I wanna briefly talk about Recovering America's Wildlife Act, which was recently introduced, reintroduced in Congress. Yes. Do you wanna talk about that yes. briefly? <laughs> just pass it let's pass let's it pass it yeah you know <laughs> it's it's so overdue you know this incredible funding for state agencies and, and tribal agencies what is it uh it's like 1.4 billion 4 billion annually annually yeah like that would be that would be game changing for for washington state department right now i'll tell you that um you know and it it foregoes this idea that um, you know we need to we need a backpack tax, quote unquote. Um, you know, I, again, I, I just don't. I do not buy into the pay-to-play model. I don't like those barriers, um, and it doesn't it doesn't solve the problem of full constituent buy-in and full constituent investment in the public trust doctrine. Um, 
so I see a bill like that as as a huge part of of the solution. You know, I I've got the Alliance T-shirt. I wear it proudly. I um I, I really I hope that 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 passes in the near future. You know, it usually takes a couple sessions, so hopefully we're making progress. And and I think we are. It's got large bipartisan support, which is wonderful. I think it does. It, it's a bipartisan bill and does have broad bipartisan support. And I think the number, I'd have to double check, but I think last session it had over 180 co-sponsors. Um, and so yeah. it's, it's, which is amazing. And it's just recently been introduced, um, but hopefully we can, uh, we can get just as much support for it. Um, and so, yeah, some, some specifics, it's a uh, hundred or 1.4 billion annually towards proactive voluntary conservation effort, efforts for wildlife that are at risk. So these are threatened species that are, they're, they're called like the greatest conservation need, um, the species that are on the brink. Um, and we want to put money towards uh, helping them before they need to be placed on the Endangered Species Act. So it is targeting, uh, it's, a, it's ridiculous. I think state fish and wildlife agencies have identified more than 12,000 species of greatest need. And so this mm -hmm. funding would be put towards um, helping them out. I, I would love your lady's opinion on this as well. You know, I, and I don't think it's a popular opinion, but I tend to get grumpy when we start investing in endangered species. And I think it's because I get grumpy with, um, with ourselves. Like we let it go so long such that, you know, is this the ultimate price we pay is the extinction of species and, and, I'm not saying that it's right or wrong. I just, I'm just saying that I do get frustrated with the, the millions and billions that we spend when we, we already screwed it up. And so where can we make those proactive investments such that we can avoid those situations? And this is a perfect example of, um, of you know, making, making that happen because we know things don't happen without dollars behind them. Um, yeah. I'm and a lot of the, um, you know, putting money towards recovering species that are on the brink of being put on the endangered species list, you know, that's beneficial to habitat. But it's also, I mean, here in Idaho, so one example is salmon and steelhead, right? Um, Idaho has multiple stocks of anadromous salmon and steelhead that are all on the endangered species list. And that is incredibly restrictive to private landowners who are, say, trying to run a ranching business and they have a river that flows through their property. So not only would, you know, ensuring all these species don't end up on the endangered species list, um, not only would that be good for just the general population and the habitat, but that would be good for people who, once that happens, um, their lives are very much changed and the way that they can run their businesses is very stifled. Great point. And, and often overlooked, I think, and, and underappreciated when it comes to, to you know, when, when we're thinking about conservation and driving conservation objectives forward, that, that human dimensions component, you know, I, it's, it's absolutely critical. Everyone, everyone's support is needed. Everyone wants um, good outcomes for, for these things, but, um, yeah, the more proactive we can be, the better. Uh, it, 
I'm going to give us a bit of a hard pivot <laughs> for time's sake. But before I do, <laughs> is there anything else you wanted to mention? You know, I'll just say, again, none of this is new or these ideas are new. I, I would, I'd love somebody to pick up the mantle and like, I don't know, take this, take this issue and, and bring it to, bring it to light in a big way such that we really can do better by ourselves, which is to say, um, educating, educating the public, um, and not just not just on one-offs at outreach tables, but in a systemic way in the school system, whereby, you know, not only are we falling in love with nature, but we're understanding that it doesn't just happen and, and that the careers that exist, you know, need to be paid for <laughs> and the places that we want um, protected cost dollars and because it's a public resource um, let's let's invest in it together I've, I've shied away started shying away from using the word like support or sustain and I'm using the word invest because it has the dual meaning of actually being able to put dollars behind um, the things that you care about and so I mean it when I say I would love to see full public investment in wildlife and wildlife management, no matter how you, no matter how you um, interact with it, whether it's birds at your feeder or, you know, the pronghorn uh, out in the, in the back country um, or the bull trout, you know, in the mountain stream. Um, there's, there's a role for everybody to, to be involved and to help make sure that these things are here in the long term. And that doesn't just mean, you know, signing petitions to protect 10 acres, but, but, you know, investing in those places as well. And the people that look after them, the people that steward them on a daily basis. Wonderful. Thank you. I, I, I you know, I know funding is like the uns the most unsexy conservation topic we could attempt to broach <laughs> but you're right it's also uh it's vital because nothing happens if it's not funded um yeah 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 so, i wouldn't go as far as to say we made it sexy but i would go as far <laughs> as this will be really interesting to anybody who's listening and i hope sparks you know a little bit of interest in pursuing this further yeah uh, and we will be talking about funding a lot more in, in the next coming months as we dig into Recovering America's Wildlife Act. So uh, if you're listening to this podcast and you're just desperate to dig into the funding of wildlife management and conservation, <laughs> uh, let us know. Email us. I'll spend hours on the phone talking with you about it. I promise. It'll be fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, excellent. So uh, hits and misses. What have you been aiming for and how did it go? Becca, do you want to kick us off? Um, sure. So I'm going to do two. So a quick miss is that um, I got really over eager this year and planted my garden probably three weeks too early. Oh, Becca, so, we talked about uh, this. <laughs> I, you know, 
I know. I'm, I'm just a sucker. I walked into the Ace Hardware and they had all these plants. And I think the goal is to get you to buy things twice because who in their <laughs> right mind buy flowers in Idaho in mid-April? I don't know. But <laughs> I think you're right. Um, anyway, I learned that lesson the hard way. Um, I'm going to, so this next one, I'm going to call it a hit, but I went for my first mountain bike ride of the year um, last week. And I bring my dog with me. Both of us love it. My legs were exhausted, but um, I'm having a really good time exploring all these new little pockets of this community that I live in. And so we're going up this drainage that had no other people in it. Really nice trail for mountain biking. And I come around the corner and my dog was probably 25 or 30 yards ahead of me. And all of a sudden I see him veer hard right. He's following his nose. I'm like, oh, I wonder what he smells. And all of a sudden a bear cub Mm. runs out of this little bush and up a tree. And I was like, oh my God, where is the sow? Like my dog is about to get pummeled by the mama bear. So I call him over to me really quick. He doesn't chase bears. He's always just curious. I think it's what they smell like. So he runs back over to me and I keep riding. We were doing an out and back. And I'm like, shoot, I have to go back through that spot. And I Mm. never saw the sow. Where is she? So I, I'd ridden ahead like probably a half mile and I sat and gave it about 20 minutes and I turned around and I knew I needed to make some noise when I went back through that spot that we saw the bear cub. So the only thing that came to mind in that moment, my heart was racing. I'm sure everything was fine, but the only thing I could think of was that Tina Turner song, um, the best, you know, that one? <laughs> simply the best. <laughs> So I'm like going on this steep downhill flying, trying to get past that spot, but also not going too fast so we don't startle them. And I'm just singing that song. And I knew there were no other people back there, but I just wish there had been someone to capture that because I'm sure it was hilarious. That makes me so happy, Becca. I can't like, I just love that that's the song that popped into your head. The first one, I think it was a Schitt's Creek thing. Like, I just watched Schitt's Creek and that song is in there. But anyway, it was pretty funny. I don't remember that song in there. Great show, great show. I do. Isn't that what Patrick (laughs) sings? Is that what Patrick sings? Okay, to David. Yep. That's hysterical. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad it worked. Yeah, we never saw the sow, so I don't know if it was a cub all by itself, if the something had happened to the female, or Did yeah, look, I don't know. It was, was it a new cub? One. It was. It was small. It definitely wasn't last year's, so it it was probably this year's, but like an early. It was pretty big already. Yeah. So I don't know what the deal was. Well, that's a good story. <laughs> um, <laughs> Jen, what have you been aiming for, and how did it go? Oh, goodness. You know, also the garden. Um, I will see. I, I volunteered at the native plant sale this, this weekend, and I'm hopeful that um, that will provide some good karma in the soil. <laughs> and there will be some fruits that result. I'm not a gardener, but I have these visions of tomatoes. and But this is the first year that I actually have a proper... Like we got, we got the, you know, the horse, big horse, metal horse water trough bins and put the, put the good dirt in. And, and so we'll see where, see where that goes. Um, earlier as, as a miss, 
I planted um, some checker mallow in the yard. Uh, I, I on it, you know, I just every year I plant more native plants in any dirt space. And of course there's rabbits and I'm saying how cute they are. And then I turn around and then they're eating my checker mallow and then I'm cursing them <laughs> and calling them bad bunnies. <laughs> so um, I just went ahead and dug out those roots because there was nothing left oh, of man. those particular native plants. Um, but I'll tell you my real hit. Um, I volunteer on the King County, which is the county that I live in, in Washington State, the King County Conservation Futures Advisory Committee. This is my first year with them, and it's an opportunity for um, this group of people, the committee, to look at proposals um, from city entities or county entities or nonprofits to uh, acquire or put easements on certain lands throughout the county for conservation purposes. And it has been so rewarding to see all this good work going on. You know, you know it's happening, like you know you know it's happening, but you don't actually know what is happening until you get an opportunity to look at the projects and help determine, you know, where the limited amount of dollars can go and um, but, you know, we had like $30 million that we were able to work with this year and, um, wow. you know, provide, provide recommendations to the city council. Yeah, yeah, on all these fantastic um, acquisitions and um, places where we're making parks bigger in urban areas or we're saving farmland in the rural areas or just in timberlands. Um, so that was a huge hit. Yeah, we just had our final meeting last week and is a huge time time suck but super rewarding and it's fantastic so if there's those types of opportunities where you where you are anybody listening um it's been really uh really cool way to be involved locally i was talking to one of our new ambassadors um who's a landowner out east and and this time by i East, I mean Eastern United States. <laughs> Sometimes I say out Eastern, I mean Eastern Montana. But in this particular case, um, I mean Eastern United States. Uh, and she was she brought up um, the point that there are more women landowners now than there have been in the past, um, in part due to uh, you know them being widows and inheriting the land and having um, children who choose uh -huh. not to uh, to take over management of it. And so um, there are more women farmers and ranchers and landowners than there have been in the past. And uh, how um, that conservation easement process can be uh, a complicated one to dig into if you if you haven't been active in land management in the in the past and so uh we were talking about offering like a just a q a um for women landowners in partnership with a lot of the organizations that are doing great um organizing work with women landowners to answer questions about conservation easements because that's pretty cool great that's idea. awesome that yeah. would be a really cool event yeah um so, so I have a hit and a miss, a, a miss and a hit. I, as as anybody who listens to the podcast regularly knows, I just got back from my bear hunt in Idaho, which was fantastic this year and had some really cool wildlife encounters, including seeing some rough grouse strut their stuff and coming um, within uh, feet, like 20 feet of a, a group of cow elk. And I rounded the corner and there they were um, all scruffy and skinny. Um, 
but beautiful. Uh, and um, I did end up harvesting a bear, but not until later in the week. Earlier in the week, I took a shot and I missed. And fortunately, it was a clean miss, um, uh, which is like the best of a worst situation. <laughs> um, so it was a clean miss. It didn't injure the bear, but I missed. And it was my first miss. And so processing that um, was interesting. And then I ended up harvesting the same bear that I missed earlier um, later in the week with a shot that I was really proud of. So it was a bit of an emotional roller coaster. Um, and we'll uh, would love to dig into that on a, on a future podcast and talk about missing. Because as one of my camp companions said, we've all done it. And if somebody tells you they haven't, they're lying. <laughs> so <laughs> I just just took that rite of passage as a hunter and um yeah and I learned a lot from it it's yeah, always really special much. when you run into the same animal I think yeah mm -hmm. um over the course of a few days I agree I agree and I'm reading um braiding sweetgrass with rereading braiding sweetgrass mm. which is our uh book club book um for I think it's June or July I can't remember when the event is I'll have to go back and clarify that um and there's a part where she talks about the honorable harvest and asking for permission to harvest uh and i feel like when you come across um the same animal a couple of times and this you know he gave me a second chance and i i uh, hope i did right by him yeah that's awesome congratulations that's thank you the it's a full circle. Yeah. Um, Jen, thank you so much for joining us and for uh, for talking with us. I really enjoyed it. Appreciate your time. Thanks for inviting me. I've, I've really enjoyed talking to you both. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Um, thank you to our listeners for joining us this week on the Artemis podcast. As I mentioned, we are having a book club, and I will. Um, we're reading three books over the course of the year, and the first one is Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer, and we will link um, to the event where you can register um, in the show notes, but you can also find it on our website. We've got it uploaded as one of our blogs. You can sign up for a time to join a group of Artemis Sportswomen to talk about this beautiful and amazing book. Uh, I hope you'll take, a, take us up on it. We hope you're having a great week. Until next time, be bold, stay curious, and get outside. <laughs>